dark night feeling Die you be a hero Or live long enough to see yourself become a villain You went from the favorite to the most hated But would you rather be underpaid or overrated? More victory reasons for minor league coaches And yeah, already told you we major you cockroaches Hello and welcome to episode 1113 of Effectively Wild A baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters I am Ben Lindbergh of the Ringer.com, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. Hello, Ringer.com. Changing it up. Yeah, I figured just in case anyone's been wondering all this time, where do I find this, the Ringer? That is where you find it. You just stick that .com on the end, and that'll take you right to it. So now you know. No excuse for not reading us. We are doing an email show today, but a bit of banter before we get there. First, I think we have to mention the American Association, which has been a recurring theme on the podcast this year. This is the league that houses the Winnipeg Gold Eyes, who we had an interview with with Mike McIntyre a while ago about a crazy extra inning game that they were involved in. And it turns out that they were involved in another This is also the league, of course, that includes the Salinas Stockade, who did not make the playoffs in the American Association this year, or even come close to it. I guess I should mention what their final record was for the season, since we talked about their losing so much this year. So Salina ended up at 18-82. and That is a 180 winning percentage. They finished 43 and a half games back (laughs) of... The Wichita Wingnuts, who are currently actually involved in a five-game championship series with the Wichita Gold Ice. And what happened was in game four, there was a crazy ending slash non-ending. So the game ended up going 17 innings, which is weird enough, but... It was even weirder that it almost ended in the regular length of time. It was, I think, the ninth inning. There's a hitter named Casey Turgeon. He grounded out to short, and this would have been the final play of the series. He is a gold eye, and the wingnuts were winning, and they were up in the series. So the wingnuts would have won the series if this had been the last out of the game, and it looked like it would be. And... He right. He grounded to short. The wingnuts celebrated. They started leaping around on the infield. They thought the game was over, and they're all in the field. And then suddenly, the it turns out that the umpire had called a balk, and the runner had to go back. The batter had to go back to home plate. And there was some controversy over this, I think mostly because the umpire didn't signal with his hands that there had been a balk. So some people didn't know. And if you watch the replay, it doesn't look like he had signaled for a balk, but apparently he said it out loud. He shouted it. And so the hitter said he heard it. And if you look at the catcher, he does not go out to celebrate with the rest (laughs) of his team. He kind of puts his hands on his head and just stands there. (laughs) So... They had to essentially say do-over on what looked like the season-ending pitch, and Turgeon ends up tying the game with his second chance. It's a two-out, two-strike, I think full-count double a few pitches later, sends the game to extra innings, and the Gold Eyes end up winning in 17 innings, sending the series to a decisive fifth game, which was supposed to be played on Tuesday, but was rained out, so will now be played Wednesday, perhaps by the time you hear this. So crazy 
ending slash non-ending, continuing the trend of Indie Ball being weird and wonderful. You have covered most of my notes. So uh, Winnipeg earlier, as we talked about on this podcast, won one of the craziest baseball games I'd ever heard of. And now if you fold in context, they have won another of the craziest baseball games I've ever heard of. Yeah, I don't know when they're going to end up playing game five, but they just increases the drama, I guess, increases the stakes. There's a quote I got from Turjan after the game, Turjan being the guy who was at the plate, who grabbed it out and then hit the game tying double, which incidentally was very nearly caught in center field. Mm -hmm. It was a full extension play, but quote, being a hitter, when you hear Bach, it's a free swing. I heard Bach. I swung at it. They made the play. He called me out. They start running to the mound, but I start walking back to home plate, Turjan said, of knowing he'd get another chance, which it's interesting because for one thing, that confirms that there was the umpire signal vocally, even if not physically, but also the Bach call would have been made as the pitcher was in his delivery. There would have been very little time between the Bach call and the ball arriving at home plate. So if Turjan is telling the truth, he made a split second decision to swing at it i think it was a two strike pitch mm-hmm. that in any case did put it in play if his explanation is to be believed one of the other controversial points here was i don't really know what the bach was in the first place i think yeah, that right. i think I it mean, was I supposed to be is, yeah but... yeah that's the one <laughs> now there's there's like the, the uh the pickoff bach and that one's weird i've never i've read like that old rj anderson article at baseball prospectus a million times about pickoff box or whatever the exact theme was but i still can't wrap my head around it and i know there's like not really a rule about planting your foot 45 degrees to first base whatever look if you're out there nobody understands what a buck is the first base this wasn't a buck the first base there was a runner on second yeah. and there was a buck and what i think what i assume the buck was only because this is the easiest buck to tell i assume the buck was because the pitcher ryan cusmall did not stop in his motion. The only yes. problem with that explanation is that he did. He did stop <laughs> in his motion. He did kind of the, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the video, he did kind of the Chris Tillman thing of, I guess a lot of pitchers do it, but I associate it with Chris Tillman where he's kind of like moving the ball in his glove as he's lowering it to his belt. So he, mm-hmm. he has the ball in his glove around his chest and he's just like lowering the glove slowly toward his belt right before he begins his delivery and then there is a pause there is in my estimation just a long enough pause and then he begins his motion so it's not a clear balk at all but still Mm -hmm. call was made and what's weird about the call being made baseball reference does have evidence there were 54 box called in the american association this year wichita incidentally was called for only one that's cusmall's team and ryan cusmall himself has not been called for a box since 2009 which was his very first year on record in some independent league. So there is evidence of a specious, I think I'm using that right, specious Mm -hmm. Bach call on a pitcher who never boxed that robbed a team of the championship game and there was no immediate signal. So everything about this, it's just, it's devastating. I don't know if Kusmal is going to be able to pitch in game five. I want him to. I would like him to close it out just because this seems like it's a little bit unfair. And if somebody sees video and and they feel like there is a balk and they they know why, please let me know because, again, I would love to know what box are this uh-huh. didn't seem like one maybe i'm wrong i would i would be put at ease if it was a clear buck i don't think it was and so it's unfair if wichita ends up losing this series because that would be a real bummer but on the other hand i mean winnipeg has become sort of the american association team of the podcast i guess so also yeah. should root for entropy right mm-hmm. yeah that's right all right well I will pay attention to what happens in that game five, and I hope it's not just a normal game. I hope it ends (laughs) in some other weird way, because that would be only appropriate. So another 
tweet that we received. We got a few tweets about that game. Got another one about a Javelin-related <laughs> matter. I don't know if you saw this. I just sent it to you again in case you missed it. This is a tweet from the CPBL Stats account. Mm-hmm. That's the Chinese Professional Baseball League, the highest league in Taiwan. And this is about what the tweet describes as Asian javelin record holder Cheng Chao Sun, who holds the record with 91.36 meters. I don't know if he's the record holder in Asia or whether he's the record holder who is from Asia. I don't know. But anyway, he threw out the first pitch at a CPBL game and now, according to this tweet, holds the CPBL record for the longest and fastest ceremonial first pitches (laughs) at a game. And... So the first, the the longest, he throws from like center field, like close to the wall or the warning track, I guess on the warning track, he throws on the fly to a person who is basically playing pitcher's helper. He's like standing right by the pitcher's mound, catches it on the fly. So that is the longest. And then the fastest first pitch is 134 kilometers per hour, about 83 miles per hour. And he throws it very hard and offline, sort of, (laughs) and it probably would have hit a photographer who does not flinch at all if it had not been deflected by the catcher, and it just barely was, so it caroms off to the side. And someone in the replies to this tweet says authoritatively that when this guy was younger, he played outfield, and because of his strong arm, he was pushed by his coach to be a javelin thrower. So maybe he started out in baseball and then became a javelin person, so it's not quite the typical progression we were talking about with javelin thrower becoming pitcher, but another example of a javelin thrower having pretty good arm strength and ability to throw a baseball. If you are out there and you are very skilled at throwing a javelin, you might consider a line of work that makes a little more money than javelin throwing. Although maybe this is going to be like playing the organ and it turns out that there's more money in throwing javelins than I thought that there was, but we don't need yeah. to we don't need to go into that. Uh, good mm. form. I like the video. It was good form of an outfield throw, not quite Brett Phillips arm strength, but you know, better than most of the players on the A's. Yep. All right. Shall we move on to emails or you have anything else? Not quite yet. Two things. Uh, it was going to be mm-hmm. one more thing, but now I have two things. One, so you did uh, an interview with minor league wonderkind Nick Sine, uh <laughs> yes. with a ringer on Monday. Nick Sine, now known, I guess, known in his circles, but now yeah. more nationally known for getting hit by everything. I wrote an article to sort of synergize with the podcast interview, I guess. On Monday, I wrote the mm-hmm. article on Fangraphs. Article about a guy in A-ball uh, with a Lansing lug nuts named Nick Sine. He's an mm-hmm. outfielder who led the minor leagues in rate of times getting hit by pitch. He did not lead an actual hit by pitches. He was second behind Brett Cumberland. But by rate, he got hit by pitches in 13% of his played appearances, which was unbelievable. Yeah. The minor league average was 1.4%. So the difference between Sine and the guy in second place was basically three times the league average. Whatever. This is just mathematical gymnastics. He got hit by pitches a lot. Last year, mm-hmm. he was a minor league leader in hit by pitch rate. In 2015, he led his college conference in hit by pitches. In 2014, he led his college conference hit by pitches when he played summer ball in 2013 and 2014 he led both those leagues and hit by pitches anyway you interviewed you and michael bauman i should say interviewed nick Sine, who has uh, leaned into this i would say <laughs> which is 
Now I just realized that's also a pun. So anyway, yes, I interacted a little with Lansing Lugnuts uh, broadcaster Jesse Goldberg Strassler after the article went up on Monday because he he was there to witness Sine's uh, historic season, uh, a uh-huh. very historic season in which he slugged like 256. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse Goldberg's wrestler relayed one further anecdote that isn't directly about a hit by pitch, but it was too good not to share with the audience. This is all from an email that I did not get permission to share, but I'm doing it anyway. So, quote Goldberg Strassler, one last quick Sine story for you. He was hitting an amazing two for 48 in road games before collecting an RBI single on June 15th with the bat still resting on his shoulder. Inside fastball, he never moved, naturally, and the ball bounced off the bat knob into no man's land down the third baseline. It brought in the tie-breaking run and sent the lug nuts on their way to victory. Nixon A singled by getting hit by a pitch and it drove in a tie-breaking run. I don't think I've ever seen that. Maybe it's happened. I would like to think that it's never happened before. Nixon A, incredible story. Love him to death. Hope he makes it to the major leagues and I hope he gets hit by more pitches than Brandon Geyer. Me too, yeah. I wish I could have asked him about that play, but he... <laughs> He was pretty funny and a good sport about talking about how often he's been hit by pitches. So I'd encourage everyone to go listen to that. And I mentioned this on the Ringer episode, but I got some stats from Hans Van Sluten Mm -hmm. about how historic this hit by pitch rate is. And I asked him to look all years, all levels in pro baseball for minimum 250 plate appearances. I wanted to know whether anyone has been hit more often than Nixon A. And there are just two hitters in all of baseball history that have been hit more often than Sine. One is Omar Guerra, who did it in the 2008 Venezuelan Summer League. (laughs) (laughs) He was hit 13.4% of the time in 262 plate appearances. And the other one was Charlie Fox, who did it in the 1951 Interstate League. That is a Class B league. And he was hit in 14.1% of his plate appearances and he had 290 plate appearances 41 hit by pitches not sure that either of those is definitely 100% accurate I don't know what the record keeping was like in the 1951 interstate league or the 2008 (laughs) Venezuelan summer league but maybe those are both legitimate I don't know but if they are even so that is pretty impressive what Nixon A is doing and he's probably doing it at a higher level of baseball than those guys were so I am blown away by Nixon A, and I can't wait to follow his career. I hope it lasts a long time, and I hope that he does not get hit by a pitch in (laughs) any serious (laughs) location. He says he gets hit mostly in his triceps, so that's good, I guess. I should also say that uh, Jesse Goldberg-Strassler relayed that they have their own pitch tracking system. I don't know exactly what it is, but he said that they had record of three times Sine was hit this year by pitches that were in the strike zone. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. As far as Omar Guerra is concerned, just because I got curious, looking up the 2008 uh, VSL Rays, the team he played for, he got hit 35 times, second place on the team, 10. Jonathan Quinones. But uh, Omar Guerra, after getting hit 35 times that season, never played again. I don't know. uh, I don't know why. I don't think I want to know why. Uh, Last thing I'll throw out there before we move on to the emails Mm -hmm. is just because we have a new first, sort of, the Red Sox signed a teenager the other day. And in case you Mm -hmm. haven't seen this, uh, the Red Sox signed the first technically Tibetan baseball player. Hmm. Not the first Chinese baseball player. And the Tibetan player, uh, let's see what his English going name, according to one article, is Jampa Rinzin. But according to 
another article. It's Jampa Rigzin. So I don't know uh -huh. which one is correct. I don't know where to go from there, but he is a catcher. He's 16 years old. He's a product of China's MLB Development Center. So he has some of the training that you'll see. And, you know, the, the difference between a Tibetan prospect and a Chinese prospect, I guess, is not very large. But this is a year where we've seen the first Lithuanian player in the major leagues and the first African player in the major leagues. So it's interesting to just have another first, another market that is beginning to get tapped, I guess. Mm -hmm. Jampa Rigzin, or Rinzin, born in 2001. He was born to a working class family, which probably describes most families east of Lhasa, uh -huh. which, if I'm not mistaken, that puts him in the general Mount Everest area, although I suppose much of Tibet is in the general Mount Everest area. Mm -hmm. So he was born east of the provincial capital of the Tibetan Autonomous Region, which we don't need to get into the politics there. Reading a website that's called the Tibetan Journal, it says news, reviews, and opinions, but it's in English, so I don't know why that is. And there's a picture of Jampa Rigzin at the top with what seems to be some sort of scout and family members and an agent or a translator. I'm not entirely sure, but it's going through some more background details. And for example, in, in 2011, after his team excelled in various tournaments and lifted the Junior Baseball League Diamond Cup champion, uh, I should warn people that the English here is not perfect. Jampa won the individual award of best pitcher in the tournament. He was a pitcher then. He's a catcher now. In September 2015, he was successfully admitted to the MLB Nanjing Baseball Development Center. By December last year, Jampa starred in China's first baseball youth top idol drama, Our Youth, and the show started to broadcast on Hunan TV from July 9th this year. I don't know what that means, but at the bottom of the article, there are some bullet points. These are just little filler details. So for example, he was born on January 1st, 2001, and he's from Tibet. Uh, he has a long Chinese name. He's listed at 180 centimeters and 78 kilograms, which my stupid American brain is not very good at translating on the fly. He plays shortstop and catcher. He has more offensive and defensive skill than Shu Gui Yuan. So take that, Shu Gui Yuan, I guess. <laughs> uh, he's from the Nanjing MLB Academy and is currently preparing for the annual 11th Asian Youth Baseball Championship. Second to last bullet point, will join the Gulf Coast League Red Sox in August. Final bullet point, very attractive young man. And I'm not sure Broking egos! Exclamation mm -hmm. point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. That's cool. All I got. Yeah. Tibetan baseball player. Super cool. All right. And I guess we can also mention that the all-time single-season record for home runs hit in baseball was broken. You've probably heard <laughs> about that already, but since we've talked about home runs and baseballs so much this season, we might as well acknowledge that that happened. The 5,694th home run of the season was hit on Tuesday night by, of course, Alex Gordon who has not contributed very much to that total overall, but he's the one who hit that decisive blow. So from now on, every home run hit in Major League Baseball will be a record-setting home run. As everyone is aware, I think home run rate is the highest it's ever been, and so are total home runs. So this was inevitable, but it has finally happened with a couple weeks left to go in the season. If you go to the MLB.com scoreboard page, you get you see the, the games and the line scores and stuff, and on the right you see video clips that have little captions over them that describe what the videos are. And yesterday, the, the video clip shows the thumbnail is Alex Gordon high-fiving Whit Merrifield crossing home plate. And the headline reads, Gordon hits 5,694th home run in majors, which is a misleading headline, which makes Alex Gordon out to be sort of <laughs> yeah. uh, the equivalent of God. So right. <laughs> uh, I would, uh, that that just, it's a screenshot that I look at and I think this is going to be a John Boys article one day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get to questions. Got a couple Babip related questions. I'll take a trout related question first. So, 
Pat says, my brother and I were recently looking at Mike Trout's year-by-year value stats, expecting to see high totals across the board, and we did see insanely high totals in base running and offense, but his defensive numbers were unremarkable. Here's where Trout stands among the top 30 players by war since 2012. According to Fangrass, he's number one overall in offense, number one overall in base running, but only 24th overall in defense. And Pat says he gets a bit of a boost for his position and does easily beat out fellow center fielders Adam Jones and Andrew McCutcheon, but is well behind Lorenzo Cain and Carlos Gomez. Now, I suppose the remarkable thing is that Trout is an otherworldly hitter and base runner and still manages to be an above-average defender at a premium position, but I always thought the narrative was that he was elite in every category. Unless I've misread the narrative, this leads me to a few possible conclusions. One, Trout's defense is overrated. Two, Trout's offense is somehow very underrated. His dominant war totals are due mostly to astronomical offensive stats. And three, Trout has room for improvement. He was a top five center fielder in 2012, and his speed is still there. So which conclusion makes the most sense? And I think, I don't know if it's fair to say that Trout's defense is overrated. I I would say that when he first came up, he was probably a better fielder than he is now, and certainly had better defensive stats. I think that was the thing that was so fun about his 2012 season, is that at least for a while there, pretty late in the year, he was number one in fielding and base running and offense. I think Cabrera passed him at some point in offense, but he was the best at everything that year, his first full year in the majors. And that was maybe the most fun Mike Trout season. I don't know, because it came out of nowhere and he was so great at every aspect of the game. And I think he had a bunch of home run robberies mm-hmm. either in that first year or the, the first couple years of his career, which helps a lot in defensive stats and is obviously partly a product of skill, but also partly a product of opportunity. You have to have enough home run robbery opportunities and that means you just have to have balls that are just barely over the fence and you only get so many of those opportunities a year. And so Chut's defensive stats now are not great and Mike Petriello recently wrote about this because MLB just rolled out their outs above average stat for outfielders and Chut doesn't do that well but as Mike pointed out a lot of that is just that he hasn't had difficult opportunities this year he's had like the easiest plays on average of any outfielder or easiest opportunities which could be because of great positioning could be because angels pitchers just haven't allowed a a lot of fly balls they've given up a lot of home runs that sort of thing or could just be because it's just happened to be the case that he hasn't had a whole lot of opportunities to make plays like out of his zone that would be spectacular catches but he also hasn't done that well on the opportunities he has had. He's had fewer than the expected number of difficult plays made. So as Mike pointed out, his speed has not seemed to decline, at least from last season or the season before. We don't have his speed stats from 2012. I wouldn't be surprised if he was faster then than he is now. But I would say that his defense is fine, right? Like, he's not an elite defender. He's not like the type of Andrelton Simmons, Jackie Bradley, Kevin Kiermeyer kind of class that we 
talk about as being just, you know, the cream of the crop defensively, but he's good at a premium position, and given everything else he does, he's amazing overall. Agreed. When Trout was first coming up, he had that the spate of robberies that he had in 2012. That's, I think, the kind of... It was 2012, right? When he was so. robbing all those... It feels like. Let's, so let's mm-hmm. say that it was. It makes the most sense. <laughs> sure. Given that that was Trout's coming out party, so to speak, after his sort of mediocre 2011 debut, those home run robberies and like the the clips of him going out making that catch in Baltimore and running back to his position just like grinning like an idiot staring at the scoreboard like that leaves a very lasting impression and in the same way that people think that seeing outfielders make diving catches makes them look better than they are I think that it was among Trout's first impressions I guess and so when you when you see someone who was clearly an outstanding defensive player back then you just kind of keep believing that until you have compelling evidence to believe otherwise and and Trout has never been visibly bad at all his big biggest problem for a while was his arm, but he's worked to make that better. It's still not necessarily a good throwing arm, but it's less bad than it used to be. It's it's roughly average for a center fielder. Uh, looking at the StatCast outs above average leaderboard, this year Trout is at negative three catches relative to average. Last year he was at negative two catches relative to average, so clearly nothing bad, but by sprint speed, as much as people talk about how quickly Trout can burn it down the line, his sprint speed this year is good, but he is tied with third baseman Matt Chapman and Dodgers first baseman slash everything else Cody Bellinger and I don't think that you think of Cody Bellinger as having Mike Trout speed but here we are and that's not because Trout is slow it's because Bellinger is fast and Trout's speed isn't elite maybe his acceleration is elite I don't know we don't have that anymore but he's not a bad defensive player but probably a crucial point to understand about mm-hmm. uh, anyone who plays center field is that no one aside from that one year Shinsu Chu did it no one who plays center field really looks bad because it's selective for really really good defensive outfielders and it's a lot yeah. easier to tell the difference between a bad defender and a good defender than it is between a good defender and a great defender everybody out there is a good defender especially now I mean Bailey Hamilton isn't even the best defensive center fielder in baseball anymore because there are just too many good ones and so when you have so many defense first elite defensive center fielders then it's going to be almost impossible for some like Mike tried to stand out because he's just got neck muscle you know he just can't <laughs> he can't move the way that Billy Hamilton can move because you could put three Billy Hamiltons in Mike Trout's neck <laughs> yeah so maybe it's fair to say that Trout's defense is overrated and his offense is underrated I don't know I guess I guess that might be accurate to the extent that we can judge accuracy with something as nebulous as ratings of a player but I mean Trout is the best hitter in baseball this season, at least among hitters with as many plate appearances as he's made. So I think it might be fair to say just because Trout, I think, initially developed the reputation as the guy who was really great at everything and the arguments we were making for him, like with the 2012 MVP case, wasn't so much that he was the best hitter in baseball. It was that he was a great hitter and also great at everything else. And when he put it all together, he's the best player by far. And now it would be accurate to say that he is just the best hitter, period, at least when he's been on the field this season. And I don't know that that is generally understood that he is the best hitter in baseball period with all the attention that Harper gets or Judge gets or all these other players get for their offense alone. Trout is just the best at this point. I mean, he's having his best offensive season, so that would be why. And yet, as the Angels try to make the playoffs over the past two weeks, Trout just 6 for 42. Just Mm. when you think the Angels need Trout the most... Yeah, eh, he hasn't he hasn't quite been there. Although I was I was thinking in my head, it feels like it's been a while since uh, since Trout went deep. Two games ago, two games ago he hit a home <laughs> run. He's fine. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. The aforementioned BABIP questions. Rob from San Diego says, I'm hoping you can shed some light and explain something to me. When a player has a crazily high BABIP, it's generally seen as a bad thing. But when a player has a low BABIP, like Reese Hoskins at 257, it's seen as a good thing. I get that a higher BABIP might show things like luck, but how about when it's lower? So I guess the difference here is when you're talking about a small sample or a big sample, right? So Mm -hmm. when you're talking about a big sample, it's not a good thing to have a low BABIP because BABIP is something, you know, it might be the average is around 290 or 300 for every hitter, but some guys have higher BABIPs because they're fast or they hit the ball hard or something like that. And some guys have lower BABIPs and it's not a good thing to have a low BABIP. Albert Pujols has a low BABIP at this point in his career because he's extremely slow. And as we noted recently, teams are playing him way, way back. I actually, we talked about whether you could look to see whether teams are playing deeper against Pujols. And you can actually look that up on Baseball Savant. They have the average starting position of fielders when a a batter is up. Yeah, so I looked this up just yesterday. I looked for the average depth of third baseman when right-handed hitters are up. And Pujols ranks fourth in that category. It was like 118 feet or something. He's fourth behind Stanton, Cruz, and Judge. So it goes Stanton, (laughs) Cruz, Judge, Pujols. And one of those does not belong in that group obviously offensively those are three really good hitters who hit the ball very hard and Albert Pujols who (laughs) is not that kind of hitter at this point in his career he is an extremely slow hitter so it's a weird mix of guys like Stanton and Judge and then guys like Pujols and Jose Bautista, who are, you know, slow at this point and and easy to take advantage of in that way. So, yes, fielders do play abnormally deep against Pujols, and I think the Mariners actually play that kind of Astros deep alignment against Pujols also at this point. So, anyway, if you have a, a low BABIP over a long period, that's not great. That means you're not beating out infield hits, and maybe you're not hitting the ball that hard. But if you have a low BABIP over a small sample, and you're trying to figure out, well, is this a fluke or is it real well it's i guess encouraging that someone like reese hoskins for instance has a low babip over this crazy run that he's been on because it suggests that well it's not that he's just been doing something very unsustainable on balls and play he has actually been earning quote unquote this hot streak that he's had so if you see someone who's been hot but he's had like a 450 babbit over, over that span or something then you figure well he's happening to hit the ball in an optimal place or he's getting lucky with where he's hitting the ball yeah it's a little like i guess if you're a pitcher and with pitchers home run rate is maybe the most volatile of statistics uh it just bounces around and you can try to explain why a guy is giving up a lot of home runs or why he might not be giving up a lot of home runs but usually it's just noise so in a small sample if you have a pitcher who has not allowed home runs or has allowed a bunch of home runs it's probably nothing we've seen uh just this year mike fires went from having a huge home run problem to allowing no home runs at all and masahiro tanaka has kind of done the same thing and and home runs are so important that those home runs go a long way toward sort of defining how a pitcher is going to be perceived 
And uh, even if the talent level doesn't really move around very much, still, that statistic moves around very much. So for, for pitchers, if you have your home run rate is not really to be trusted over a small sample. But if you have a large sample, if a guy gives up a lot of home runs, no, that's bad. That's a bad, that's a bad pitcher. That's like the worst thing that you can do. And if you have a large sample and you don't give up home runs, then you think, well, this guy's doing something. That's great. We should definitely try to get another Clayton Kershaw. So with Babbitt, we get emails about specific statistics fairly, fairly often. I would say people asking, would you rather have, if you knew nothing else, would you rather have this statistic or this other statistic? And, and the answer is, uh, we can we can answer as as you just did about what you want from BABIP. Totally true, but really, if you just want to know more, just look at other numbers. You you don't need to know that many numbers to be able to evaluate a player, but it's almost it's it's always more than one. So BABIP is something to be folded in with other statistics, and it is never it has never been unless I've been searching for BABIP specifically. It's never been the first thing that I've looked at for any player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And we had uh, another BABIP-related question. This is from Linder. He says, with all the talk about BABIP and its misleadingness, I was curious as to what your opinions are on the following. Would it be more effective to evaluate hitters based purely on their walk rate and strikeout rate or to only use batting average? Additionally, if players' hitting abilities were evaluated based on their walk rate and strikeout rate, who would be baseball's most overvalued and undervalued players? As a Twins fan, Robbie Grossman, came to mind as someone who would likely be highly overvalued. Well, I responded to that by email, but I don't remember how I responded. So let's see if my answer (laughs) matches up with what I said then. I think that I would take walk rate and strikeout rate. I think that... That is what you said, yes. Great. I think strikeout rate, (laughs) it implies the the bat-to-ball skill, and you can try to infer some things from that. And walk rate, it not only will tell you something about the player's discipline, but it can also, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, it can tell you something about the player's power as well, which batting average can't players who hit for power tend to be walked more than players who don't because you know you don't want to give up powerful hits so <laughs> again you you would love to have more and someone like robbie grossman is a weird case where he doesn't strike out and he he walks a bunch even though he doesn't seem to have a bat so he just kind of stands there and kind of a nixon-esque uh, <laughs> attempt to reach base via not hits but yeah. for for most players you want those high walks low strikeouts jose ramirez is a an example of a, a higher walk low strikeout guy who just figured everything else out and for that same high walk low strikeout reason i'm starting to wonder if maybe Cattell Marte is going to be like the breakout player of 2018 because he does <laughs> those things right and he runs pretty well and uh, you figure the other stuff can develop but batting average is good you know joey Votto, high batting average that's great it mm-hmm. tells you plenty of information but i would i mean if nothing else i'd rather have two numbers in one right yeah sure i just want to mention this tweet i just saw from <laughs> craig calcaterra it's about alexa's most searched MLB players, so Amazon Alexa, Uh the uh, device that you have in your home and you ask it stuff. I don't know. I don't totally understand the appeal of that type of device, although I'm generally a gadget guy. But anyway, the Alexa people at Amazon sent Craig a list of the most Alexa'd MLB subject. And so we have a list of 10 players here. I'm going to read 9 through 2 first, because 9 through 2 are very obvious, very predictable. So starting with 9 and counting down, we've got Clayton Kershaw, Anthony Rizzo, Alex Rodriguez, David Ortiz, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, and Albert Pujols. Okay, those are all famous, well-known players. Number one on the list, Tyler Moore. What? <laughs> Which uh, I think what? Has, to be, <laughs> has to be because of the late Mary Tyler Moore, right? I would think <laughs> she she died in January. I'm guessing that a lot of people have been Alexa-ing Mary Tyler Moore, and Alexa is 
giving them results about the baseball player Tyler Moore, which is probably not all that interesting or not what they were looking for. So I don't know why they're bragging about this, really. This seems like (laughs) something you would want to sweep under the rug. Anyway, Tyler Moore shows up as the most elected MLB player. Number 10 is Chris Young. And Mm. granted, there are two Chris Youngs, but I would think that even if you added together real searches for both Chris Youngs, they still wouldn't add up to someone who is actually famous and and good. So I don't know what to make of that. Chris Young, I don't know, he's on the Red Sox. He was on the Yankees. He was involved in the whole sign-stealing thing. But maybe this is another case of confusing a player with some other phrase that has Young in it. Or I don't know, is there some other Chris Young Yes, there is. Christopher Allen Young, born June 12, 1985, is an American country music singer and songwriter. Uh In 2006, he was declared the winner of the television program Nashville Star, a singing competition which aired on the USA Network. So there is another Chris (laughs) Young. But how is Alexa or whoever is compiling this? I just turned on my Alexa. Whoops. How is Alexa (laughs) determining what searches are for baseball? Because if someone's saying like, Alexa, tell me something about Chris Young baseball. See what she says. You know what? (laughs) <laughs> Fine. Go to hell. Alexa doesn't want to respond. Oh, now she lights up. Whatever. It's a useless device. Usually I sit at work and then I say, Alexa, play some playlist. And then I listen to a song and then the playlist is not organized well. And I think, Alexa, just stop. And then that's the end of it. So a very yes, frustrating right. device that I keep on my desk to be activated randomly during baseball broadcasts. But yeah. <laughs> uh, So there is the Chris Young, who seems to be far more well-known than the other yes. baseball Chris Youngs, I'm going to guess. Combined. So I don't know yeah. how it was determined that those were baseball searches. I'm going to guess. Not a whole lot of thought was put into it was no. albert pujols second place he was or is he yeah. ninth second, second. so really first place if we're going to assume tyler yes. moore is, is married <laughs> yes. tyler moore that's right albert pujols being a search more is that because he's albert pujols modern day legend or albert pujols worst player in professional baseball yeah i would have to imagine at this point it's probably the latter <laughs> alexa sell albert pujols <laughs> trade albert pujols with mike trout because their value cancels each other out, uh, as we've whoa. determined. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Alexis, Alexis talking to me about something. <laughs> Alexa, sell Albert Pujols. The top search result for sell Albert Pujols is Epic Case's iPhone 6 case. For Apple iPhone, ultra slim transparent dominate the baseball field series. It's $19.99 total. Would you like to buy it? No. <laughs> no. Alexa, no. Not at all. Definitely not. An iPhone 6 case? See, I what? Check it. back in. No, don't check back in. Stop. Stop. The- Alexa, stop. <laughs> Alexa, stop. Well, glad you're oh getting God. good use out of this device. Oh, my God. What a horrible <laughs> device. Bad gift. Yeah. Bad gift, everyone. <laughs> All right. Play index. I have a quick play index of my own, but you go first. We got an email some time ago. Uh, I couldn't quite pull up who it was. So sorry, listener slash emailer. I don't recall your name. Couldn't find it. But he had a, a very simple question. He was curious about the uh, the worst starts, the worst pitching appearances ever made, but the pitcher allowed no runs. And uh, I couldn't really search that for relievers. I didn't care. It's more interesting with starters. And so this wound up being a a pretty simple play index query that I pulled up, went to baseball reference, and I searched for starting pitchers who allowed zero runs in their starts. And then I just searched in ascending order of game score. Game score, of course, not being perfect, but whatever, it'll work. Mm -hmm. And when you do this, you will find a lot of games, uh, unsurprisingly, where the starter seems to have begun and then probably got hurt. So, for example, I don't know what happened to Wade Miley on May 5th of this season, but Mm -hmm. he shows up. He started. He went two thirds of an inning. He allowed three hits. There were no runs. 
I don't remember if Wade Miley got hurt or if Buck Showalter just kind of snapped to it and he was like, whoa, Wade Miley's pitching. Let's knock that off. And then he went and got him. But Wade Miley does show up there. But I don't think that's really in the spirit of the question. I don't think anybody mm-hmm. cares that Wade Miley allowed no runs in two thirds of an inning of a bad start. So for, uh, let's see, a, a pretty contemporary example with a game score of 48. Actually, we have Travis Wood from just three weeks ago. Hmm. Travis Wood started a game against the Giants. This is a game the Padres won five to nothing. And Travis Wood was not eligible for the win. And here's why. 4.1 innings, six hits, four walks, no runs. So Travis Wood, terrible start in a game where Brad Hand got the save. So that shows up there. It's uh, it's not the worst. And as I'm just kind of scrolling up, we've got Fergie Jenkins in 1967 going two and a third innings with four hits and three walks. That's bad. Scrolling up from there, we've got Bob Hendley. Bob Hendley, not Bob Henley. So this is a... <laughs> different kind of game 1966 april 23rd through two and two-thirds innings five hits four walks no runs uh, also through a wild pitch for good measure that's bob henley with a bad but scoreless start on april 23rd 1966 interestingly just worse than that four days later hank fisher 1966 april 27th two and one-third innings six hits no runs, no walks, no strikeouts. There's uh, two game scores that are worse than that. Hank Fisher showed up with a game score of 45. One of them is a pitcher who allowed three hits and recorded zero outs in 1914. I don't care. As far as I'm concerned, those weren't even human beings. But in 1922, this is one that confuses me. I have been able to find no answers to this. I emailed this back to the listener. July 21st, 1922. It's a game between the Boston Braves and the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals won the game 6-1. to one. They were out hit for 14 to 8. Bill Doak is our starting pitcher in question. Bill Doak started for the Cardinals. He was not eligible for the win. Bill Doak, incidentally known for a few things, he innovated the design of the baseball glove, according to Wikipedia. In 1920, he suggested to Rada Rawlings that a web should be laced between the first finger and the thumb, saying it would create a natural pocket. The mm-hmm. Bill Doak glove soon replaced all other baseball gloves and is the standard to this day. So good job, Bill Doak. Uh, also, according to the nationalpastime.com, in 1922, Cardinals right-hander Bill Doak loses his no-hitter when he forgets to cover first base, turning Kurt Walker's seventh inning grounder to first baseman Jack Fournier into an infield hit. The Redbird star Spitballer, that's the other thing he's known for, settles mm-hmm. for a one-hitter, his second of the season, and a one-nothing victory over the Phillies at Sportsman's Park. So Bill Doak, a few claims of fame, but in this start, Bill Doak worked a clean three innings, zero runs, this is according to baseball reference, three innings, zero runs, nine hits, into two walks. I don't know how this happened because this predates the play-by-play logs on baseball reference and i've been able to find no further evidence of anything but bill doak if these numbers can be trusted so bill doak three innings that means nine outs that he recorded unless he pitched into the fourth and we just don't know that he was relieved by one clyde barfoot I've never heard of a barfoot, but in any case, Clyde Barfoot got the win with five innings of one-run baseball. The losing pitcher in this game was named Mule Watson. Sure. Let's just uh, let's just go over some names in this one. Mule Watson. We have a Clyde Barfoot. Specs Toporser, I guess. Uh, Miltstock. Lead off. Lead off of the St. Louis Cardinals. Fun one. Max Flack. That's a uh, that's pretty good. The three four hitters were Rogers Hornsby and Heine Mueller. So it's also good. There was a there was a Hod Ford playing shortstop for the Boston Braves. Yeah, I don't think it's going to get better than Hod Ford, <laughs> yeah. Max Flack, and Clyde Barfoot. In any case, Bill Doak, three innings, nine hits, two walks. 
uh, game score of 39, which is terrible, but it shows up with 15 batters faced. So nine hits, two walks, nine outs, 15 batters faced. <laughs> I don't entirely know. I haven't tried to work it through in my head how many double plays would have been necessary. But even if you had what you can only have one double play in an inning, I guess. So if you have what? God, how many maybe caught stealing? Did players get caught stealing in the game? And yeah. uh, no, <laughs> the answer the answer is no, that didn't happen. Larry Kopf stole a base. Frank Gibson stole two bases. So I couldn't, I tried to pull up like the, the newspaper article of the day, but it's all concerned about like war time. Just weird old <laughs> human history. So I couldn't figure out what happened to this game. So I don't know if these numbers are, are reliable, but uh, I mean, nine hits and a two, in theory, unless something else is happening, you can only allow three base runners in an inning unless uh -huh. something without allowing a run, unless something weird happens. So maybe there right. are a bunch of outs on the bases or at home or what, but for now, at least as far as I can tell, if the numbers are true, Bill Doak, Worst ever scoreless start, July 21st, 1922. Three innings, nine hits, two walks, 15 batters faced. If you can solve the mystery, please, <laughs> please help to solve the mystery because I am at a loss, unlike Bill Doak. <laughs> All right. Well, my stat segment is actually about scoreless seasons of Ooh. a sort. So this is a question from listener Dylan, who says, I just watched relief pitcher Carlos Ramirez pitch for the Blue Jays and was amazed when I looked him up and saw that he has not given up a run yet in 45 and two-thirds innings of professional baseball this year at AA, AAA, and the majors. What is the professional baseball record for scoreless innings in a season. Now, Carlos Ramirez is now up to 47 and two-thirds innings. He has allowed runs. He allowed two unearned runs at double-A, but he has a zero ERA this season in 47 and two-thirds innings. That is pretty impressive. So this is not play-indexable, so I went deeper. I emailed Hans Van Sluten, the estimable, invaluable Hans Van Sluten, who runs stats for Baseball Reference, and I asked him to query up a list for me of pro players with the highest innings totals who had zero ERAs in a season. And Carlos Ramirez really close to the top. So mm -hmm. at the very top of the list, there is Teddy Corbett, who had a zero ERA in 88 innings in 1892 for... <laughs> <laughs> The Western League in 1892. Now, I don't know if we can trust Western League scorekeeping from 1892, and I don't know whether we should count 1892 regardless, but Teddy Corbett, your official record holder. But in the modern era, the record holder is Ramon Acosta, who in 2008 had a zero ERA in 54 and two-thirds innings. Now, Ramon Acosta did that in the Dominican Summer League. So this is obviously a much lower level of baseball than Carlos Ramirez is doing it. And that's it. It's Teddy Corbett, Ramon Acosta, and then Carlos Ramirez at 47 and two-thirds. So... Unless you count the 1892 Western League guy or the 2008 Dominican Summer League guy, Carlos Ramirez, definitely your record holder for high-level baseball, AA, AAA, and the majors. He is now up to 47 and two-thirds, I guess. He does not have time to surpass Ramona Costa's 54 and two-thirds, but what he has done, I would say, is considerably more impressive than what Ramon Acosta did, given the quality of competition, and also given that 
Ramon Acosta allowed six unearned runs that year, and the very following season allowed a 5.04 ERA (laughs) and a 7.92 RA and was out of baseball after that. That was in the Appalachian League rookie ball. So basically what Carlos Ramirez has done here is extremely impressive. Now, you know, if he had spent the whole season in the majors, he probably wouldn't have done this. If he had (laughs) thrown more innings, if he had been a starter, he wouldn't have done this. So it's not like the most impressive pitching feat of all time, but it is pretty impressive and virtually unprecedented. And he's actually a converted outfielder who started pitching in 2014 I believe, in the Blue Jays system. He's 26. Mm -hmm. He is now up to 10 scoreless innings in the majors. So good job, Carlos Ramirez. He's uh, got pretty good peripherals, too. Yeah. The only thing I had on him was that he was a converted pitcher. He was an outfielder for about five years in the Blue Jays system, started pitching in 2014, and he had the numbers of a converted pitcher. He (laughs) had high walks, no strikeouts, and he's gotten better every season. And at this point, he's throwing a fastball at 93 with a slider. So he looks like a uh, a pretty standard (laughs) generic six foot five right-handed reliever. And at 26 years old, he's he's on a bad team, which is giving him a chance to have a career. So Mm -hmm. there's a pretty long history of these sort of converted players, but I think they're always interesting. I don't know if Ramirez had a a pitching background at some lower level, but considering that there have been people in the minors or the major leagues who have been pitching for 15, 20 years who aren't quite very good, Ramirez Mm -hmm. is just like, meh. I want to try this because I'm not very good at my full-time job. (laughs) (laughs) Three years later, here he is, Major Leagues, scoreless. Yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty cool season. So that's something to watch over the next couple weeks, see if he can extend that streak. All right, question from Maggie. I have a question regarding what happens if a player is ejected mid-play on defense, but the ball ends up at his position. I'm currently watching Cubs cards, and John Lackey just got ejected, no surprise there, mid-play as he was backing up home plate. For reference, it was a 1-1 game in the fifth, runners on first and second, two outs, Lackey pitching to Carlos Martinez, 2-2 count. Lackey throws what is likely a ball, but is questionable. We actually talked about this briefly on our Andrew Varga interview on Monday. Martinez starts to walk to the dugout as he believes it's a strike, though the umpire calls it a ball. Lackey got a bit hot right away, but nothing major there. Next pitch happens and Martinez hits a line drive single that scores a run. Lackey jogs toward the plate to back up a throw home and is consequently mouthing off to the umpire during the process. The umpire throws him out seemingly before the play is really over. I'm wondering what would happen if, say, there was an overthrow and Lackey caught it, but he's already been thrown out of the game. I did a little research to see if I could find a precedent for this, but seemed to only find happenstances with managers being ejected mid-play. And I know you were able to Google up a rule that applies here. Yeah. So you might remember that Sam went through the rules and found the rule that he most wants to see take place where a player <laughs> can be ejected, change into street clothes, and then sit in the bleachers. That yeah. is permissible by baseball <laughs> law. So we're still waiting for that as far as I know, but very near to that rule in the rule book is the following rule. Rule 8.01 parentheses D close parentheses. I used an exclamation point. It doesn't come with an exclamation point. <laughs> I will quote the rule. Each umpire has authority to disqualify any player, coach, manager, or substitute for objecting to uh, to decisions or for unsportsmanlike conduct or language and to eject such disqualified persons from the playing field. If an umpire disqualifies a player while a play is in progress, the disqualification shall not take effect until no further action is possible in that play. So by rule, John Lackey was ejected but was still part of the game until the play was complete. I did not expect to find a rule about this. I was somewhat <laughs> pleasantly surprised to be able to conclusively answer the question. Mm-hmm. And also this is only a rule because it must have happened before that somebody was ejected mid-play. Right. And then they were like, well, wait, now, um, hmm, what do we yeah. what do we do? So there is some precedent. I just don't know where or when. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. All right. And related question from Matt, who was perusing the rule book because of the very same lackey play, and he <laughs> did find rule 8.01D. But in the process, he says he also noticed rule 6.04B, which says in part, well, I'll just read it in whole. So it says players in uniform shall not address or mingle with spectators, <laughs> nor sit in the stands before, during, or after a game. No manager, coach, or player shall address any spectator before or during a game. Game, players of opposing teams shall not fraternize at any time while in uniform. So this is in the section of the rulebook about unsportsmanlike conduct, Matt says, and incidentally appears immediately before a rule preventing a fielder from getting in a batter's line of sight and distracting him, the Eddie Stanky rule, I guess. <laughs> and so this is evidently included twice in the rulebook. There's also a separate no fraternization rule, 4.06. So Matt says, my question is, have you ever heard of this no fraternizing rule being in Invoked, should it prohibit the kinds of interaction, even by the Romine brothers, that upset some related to the Tigers Yankees brawl, talking during batting practice, or maybe just that if you go out to a bar together afterward, you cannot wear your uniform? Players cannot wear their uniform to Halloween parties unless there were no players on other teams present. I also note that an early part of the same rule prohibits players from addressing spectators while in uniform ever, thus perhaps disallowing any video board announcements or ads featuring a player in uniform and talking to fans while giving them autographs. So, yeah, this rule seems like probably a relic of an earlier era of baseball, I guess, where teams did not fraternize. I don't know why it was specifically banned, but the not addressing or mingling with spectators, that seems like it's probably a response to, I don't know, some player swearing at fans or something like that and needing a rule to eject anyone who does that. Of course... This is not strictly enforced because you get you know, <laughs> Joey Votto talking to fans all the time. And, and I mean, that is something that we want to encourage, if anything, I think, players interacting with fans in a benign way and signing autographs and talking to them when they dive into the stands to catch a foul ball or whatever. So clearly not enforced. And I don't know what the origins of the various parts of this rule are, but I guess it's good to have at least the unsportsmanlike parts of this just so you have a rule to throw at someone when they do something bad. But the no fraternization rule, I, I don't know the, the original origin of that, and I'm not aware of any time that it has been invoked. Right. I know it was sort of a uh, an old Rob Nyer pet complaint that you were players are not supposed to fraternize with one right. another on the playing field. And I'm, I always kind of figured it was tongue in cheek and I didn't know where I was coming from. And I'd, I'd heard the specific word fraternization is pops up every so often. And like just often enough that you figure it had to come from somewhere. And presumably it comes from a time when someone found out about this rule and decided, Hey, players shouldn't be allowed to be friendly with one another on the field, which whatever, I guess it's a spectator event. You can, maybe you want a little more conflict. What I find interesting about this rule, uh, 4.06 or 3.09, I don't know exactly how the decimals work, the specific no fraternization rule. Not only is there the the part where players can't mingle with spectators, because I feel like I'm seeing now a rash of videos of players throwing the ball back and forth with the kids in the bleachers yeah. mm-hmm. now. I don't know if that's a new thing, but it seems like every team is trying to hype up some player on their team who does it, because like, wow, look at 
what a humble, normal human he is. But, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, it's probably not very satisfying for a player to throw with a kid in the bleachers. Like, that kid, it's not, you can't, you can't throw it 100% and that kid can't throw it 100%. And it's, like, yeah. look, I've thrown, I've thrown with kids before. It's terrible. But anyway, <laughs> part of the same rule, first sentence, players in uniform shall not address or mingle with spectators nor sit in the stands before, during, or after a game. So that goes with the specific rule about how players can be ejected, but then they have to change into street clothes if they want to sit in the bleachers. Players can be in the bleachers, but they have to be undercover. Mm-hmm. Okay. Huh. All right. Weird rule. A lot of weird relics left over in the baseball rule book. It's a long book. All right. Steven says, with the MLB schedule starting a few days earlier in 2018 and therefore adding off days to stretch the schedule, how do you guys think it will affect rotations? Could this help allow teams to utilize a six-man rotation? Will it lead to healthier pitchers and thus fewer overall pitchers used throughout the league, thus backfiring for the players' union? And will some teams use this to get another couple starts out of their ace by skipping their lesser starters? Maybe it'll have no tangible effect, but I ask the questions anyway, such as life. So I I would say, yeah, probably no tangible or at least provable effect. But if anything, I would think the last thing he mentions is the most likely that you would just be able to skip your worst starter a couple Mm -hmm. times maybe and do the opposite of a six-man rotation like almost more of a a four-man rotation at times i mean it we're looking at what four extra off days so it's nothing yeah nothing you're you're likely to notice i'm sure teams will have designs because you can always map out a schedule and if you want you can try to maximize the starts that you get from your number one by just taking advantage of off days that have already existed but this is taking place at the same time when teams are trying to be more conservative with their pitchers than ever before so there is an increased opportunity to, I don't know what word to use, leverage your rotation and make it a little more top heavy. But at the same time, I think teams are trying to take it a little more easy on their numbers one, number ones. I don't know. I don't care. (laughs) So it's something where maybe down the stretch, if you have a team that's just trying to squeeze its way in, you have a team that just kind of goes all CC Sabathia on the Brewers and tries Mm to use their number one as often as possible. But that's it's such a small it's such a small change that I can't imagine that anyone's going to actually notice anything. It's not going to be as observable in effect as like what's happened with the 10 day disabled list where all of a sudden disabled list visits are up. It's it's not going to be like that. Yeah. All right. Travis says right now the Red Sox are set to face the Astros in the ALDS. We've all seen playoff teams with division leads spend the last week setting up the rotation and balancing rest against rust. However, the two teams have a four game series against each other at the end of the season, setting up the rare possibility of playing nine straight games against the same opponent. Would this at all change how the two teams approach the last four games of the season? For instance, would either team try to change the matchup? The Red Sox could lose to try to push the Astros past the Indians, or the Astros could try to send the Red Sox to the wildcard game in favor of the Yankees. Would either team try to take or preserve home field advantage for the ALDS? The Red Sox are only four and a half games behind the Astros and could have a chance to seal home field. How much rest would the two teams give their players? Any other weird strategies? You could try send every runner for the extra base to get a sense of the defender's arm strengths or tell my fielders to hold something back to surprise the other team, et cetera, et cetera. Well, my assumption is that it would be boring. I think baseball is pretty conservative and unwilling to really kind of play around with a situation like that. If you have a series that means almost nothing, uh, just immediately before a series that means almost nothing, everything, then the likelihood is that the priority would be put on player rest and player health and not doing anything too crazy because you just want to keep those players for the games that actually will matter. I don't think that the Astros would try, for example, to knock the Red Sox out of first place in their division because it's not like the Astros get anything from that. Then they just have to face the Yankees, which would be really hard also. So I don't think they would care. If you had a situation where the two teams were tighter, then I think you could see them 
play for home field advantage on both sides. But in this case, where the Red Sox, as of right now, are five and a half games behind the Astros, like unless that really narrows, then I don't think it's going to matter. So even if the Red Sox were like three games behind the Astros, I don't think that they would bust their asses trying to go for the sweep because I don't think that they would uh, care that much. Home field advantage, just not that important. And it would be too hard to play for because you would need to sweep the series. So I think that you would have both teams take it pretty easy on their best players. And then who knows what you might see from the backups or the the depth pieces you could see maybe some sort of gamesmanship i guess it would be a lot of fun if you sort of uh try to rope it open or maybe that's the wrong term but if the yeah. red Sox used chris sale but then he just like made himself look broken or something mm-hmm. that would be interesting just to kind of throw the astros off the scent in this hypothetical but you know you do that and at the same time you run the risk of maybe chris sale gets all messed up because he tried to look messed up and yeah. at some point you are what you are so you don't want to act in a way that in any way changes your routine or performance so i think there's the opportunity for things to go really weird and really fun but really if you're looking for someone to do really something really fun and silly down the stretch you should probably look at like i don't know the padres because who cares Mm -hmm. yeah travis suggests starting a beanball war one team could (laughs) use their triple a players on the expanded roster to try to goad the other players into getting suspended somehow that's a good idea. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you could just bring up some idiot to like throw at Carlos Correa, I guess, if you really want to get into the weeds here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I could see maybe one of the teams like holding back or skipping a starter, for instance. Like, I don't know if you're going to see Chris Sale a couple times in the ALDS. Maybe you don't want the Astros to see him another time right before the playoffs. Maybe you go out of your way to avoid that a little bit and give the guy some rest at the same time. So something like that, perhaps. But I can't imagine anything else all that fun happening, unfortunately. That's baseball. Just not fun. Yeah, we are almost done here. Let's see if we can get through this one. I was listening to the podcast earlier this week where you spoke about the catcher attempting to frame a pitch that bounced, and it got me thinking, what would baseball be like if the pitcher could bounce the ball and still have it be called a strike? The strike zone wouldn't change, but a pitch that bounced and then crossed the plate in the zone would be called a strike. I realize the obvious answer to this question is cricket, but as an English fan of both sports, I wondered if this would actually give a pitcher any advantage and if anyone would even bother to try. So I guess the advantage, I mean, the pitch is going to get to the plate slower if it bounces first, but it's going to have unpredictable spin and direction. And maybe that's a reason not to do it because you're not sure where the ball is going to end up. But on the other hand, maybe it's a reason to do it because it would be unpredictable for the batter too. And there'd be no time for the batter to adjust to a ball that bounces right in front of the plate. So I could imagine some pitcher perfecting this strategy and having it be very effective for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a difficult one to think about in my head. Obviously, it works in cricket. This is something that people do and refer to as pitchers on that side of the world, but that's fine different sport i think that but this is something most pitchers wouldn't try certainly in like a full count you're not going to do this because you figure that it's just going to be too hard to control the way that the ball bounces and even mm-hmm. if you get really good at it you're just you're not going to be able to tell what part of the baseball is hitting the ground at what precise moment so you are going to have a lot of crazy bounces hitters would never swing you just can't you wouldn't yeah. you're trained the entire time you don't swing at the and you just have to assume that pitch is going to be a ball but even though i think that baseball for the most part would stay the same i've come around to the idea that this would be an advantage for pitchers because they would just present a new weapon a weapon that hitters don't really have much of a defense for aside from mm-hmm. not swinging 
I imagine the maybe the biggest change is you'd see a dramatic increase in 0-2 count called strikeouts because that's when I think pitchers would be most likely to try to do this where they figure, well, I have four pitches to burn. I'm going to try to bounce one, spike it in the dirt in front of the plate, and then if it bounces up and gets right in the middle of the zone, well, hitter is not going to recognize that as a pitch in the middle of the zone. Umpire is going to have to call it a strike. I don't know how umpires would deal with these called strikes because they mm-hmm. would probably be very hard to know exactly where they cross into the zone. You're not used to calling pitches that are moving up into the zone, but yeah. if umpires were able to be trained for it and they knew what was going on, then I could see someone like Rich Hill or someone else who's good just being like, well, 0-2 count, I'm just going to spike it. And uh, if it bounces up into the zone, hitter's not going to do anything, and then free strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got some other good ones starred, but we will table them for next time. You can keep them coming, of course, and we will wrap it up there. Late-breaking American Association news. The Winnipeg Gold Eyes won. They beat the Wichita Wingnuts 18-2. to So the outcome of this decisive fifth game was never in doubt. So the Gold Eyes are the team that almost lost game four and were bailed out by that Bach. So that Bach may very well have swung the outcome of the American Association Championship Series. Congrats to Winnipeg. And Wichita, we're sorry. Also, remember all those stats I cited about Blue Jays reliever Carlos Ramirez, the man with 47 and two-thirds innings and a zero ERA? Yeah, the inning after that didn't go so well. (laughs) Between the time that we talked and the time I'm posting this, Ramirez pitched one inning. He allowed four earned runs. (laughs) So he now has a 3.27 ERA in 11 major league innings. Sorry, Carlos. Couldn't quite make it to the finish line. That's why it's so hard to do. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Jeff Johnson, Jody Madrone, Dustin Palmatier, Joel Gillespie, and Matthew Yo. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. The email address for questions and comments is podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also reach us through the Patreon messaging system. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. We will be back later this week. One, one, one.